welcome to our March 2020 installment of Sarah Shady Public Philosopher. I'm here today with Sam Mulberry. We are in strange times, unpredicted times, Sam Mulberry. <laughs> we are. Uh, but we're, we are but we're, today we're going to talk about something that's really uh, applicable. Exactly. Today we are going to talk about uh, the novel The Plague by Albert Camus. Uh, Sam and I both have a love of Camus, and this is not our first time reading this book, but it's our first time reading this book actually in times of quarantine. And, right. Uh, and, and so we're going to um, talk about the novel, some philosophical themes in the novel, but also talk about uh, what it means to be human in time of plague and in time of suffering. Um, just a quick historical background on the novel. So it was published in 1947, and it takes place in the town of Oran in northern Algeria. Um, and the setting of the novel is that the town of Oran is under a breakout of the bubonic plague. Now, there actually would have been um, historically recorded breakouts of plague in the early 1900s in Algeria, so it would have been live in the minds of Camus' audience. Um, Camus is an existentialist author, and he won the Nobel Prize in 1956 or seven, I think. Anyways, so this is a well-received novel, um, and all of Camus' novels really talk about, like, uh, questioning about the human condition. What does it mean to be human? Um, a lot of focus on being human in the context of absurd circumstances. So the people in the town of Iran are in the absurd circumstances of their town is completely on lockdown. No one can get in, no one can get out, and they're just waiting for the plague to run its course. And as we move into shelter in place in Minnesota tonight at uh, at midnight, I think we are beginning to uh, mirror some of the context of the plague. Sam, I know that you recently reread the plague, and how did. did it feel different to read it actually in the context of our current events? I found myself paying more attention to the like magistrates of the city and oh, the doctors, right. the doctors who initially were either underplaying it whether intentionally or not intentionally um and the the folks who like didn't want to admit that it was plague like i found those 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 are characters i had never really thought much about because the story has some really like um characters that very much stand out there's some central characters i never thought about some of those people on the periphery as much but they definitely seem because i feel like i'm one of those people now you know too like i'm i feel like a townsperson so i'm interested in what he describes any townsperson doing. Exactly. I also think of myself now in the role of townsperson, and they're in a lot of ways the background characters, but you kind mm -hmm. of see them going through different stages. Like at first, everybody just kind of still goes about their regular life as best they can. Then they get into almost um, like an extra happy party phase almost living for like the moment of in right life is so without joy they're looking for as much joy as they can possibly have in the moment <laughs> yeah i also found it interesting um so i've been doing a, a lot of uh, a lot of podcasts um uh these last couple days and connecting with people that i haven't talked with since you know before this started and i feel weird 
because I always find myself saying like, I'm actually kind of loving this mode of life. And so I, I also think about uh, the character uh, Cotard, like the guy who thrives during this time. Now I don't, I'm not thriving in the way he, but there is sort of this <laughs> thing where it's like, Oh, I actually kind of like elements of this. And, you know, uh, as an introvert and as somebody who likes to sort of, I get into work and I just sort of do my thing and I, and there's, I'm not interrupted by other people. I'm like, I, I found myself, I, I read that character differently too. Right. Um, it's interesting because, um, Cotard, some background information for our listeners if they haven't read it. I mean, Cod at the start of the novel, Cotard's about to be arrested. And he actually finds that, like, it, well, his case is kind of becomes less important in the context right. of the plague. Well, he's committing suicide at the beginning. He's trying to commit suicide, right? Right, to avoid the, yeah, avoid being arrested. And he ends up thriving because he's running this underground smuggling ring of like, like imagine if Governor Walls had closed the liquor stores and right, like, right. How are we? How are people still going to get their goods? And he's thriving. And actually, as they start to see signs that the plague is getting better, he starts to dread the return to his actual life. And it's really funny. Yesterday evening, we went out on a walk as a family of four with our dog and our entire neighborhood was out for a walk in, in mm. our little in our little groups of social distancing. But it was this weird sense of um, circumstances aren't as they should be. But yet none of us are busy. None of us have anywhere else to be or anything else to do on a beautiful early spring evening. And so we're all just walking about and talking to each other across the street. And there is this weird sense of, of, yeah, of thriving in very unusual times. Yeah. So w when did you first read this book? Like what was, what was the, what age were you when you first read this? Um, I first read this book probably in college. My introduction to Camus was with The Stranger, and then I wanted to start reading other things by him. And I, I read The Plague. Um, I used to always teach The Stranger in my courses. And a few years ago, I actually switched to The Plague because there's so many more interesting characters that you can mm -hmm. play around with. So our central character in the novel is Dr. Ryu, who... Um, is just kind of at face value going through the plague, doing the things a doctor would do, taking care of people. His wife has been, um, is outside of the city when they go under lockdown, so he doesn't have any connection to his wife. He just kind of lives every day in this continual cycle of get up, take care of people as best I can. Um, and it's day. real sort of do your job kind of kind of person. Um, and, and as the book goes on, you, you learn a little bit more about kind of why he is that way. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that, I, that I'm curious about, and maybe this is getting way out ahead of ahead of us, but one of the devices that Camus uses is he uses a narrator for the book, yeah. right? And in the last couple pages of the book, the narrator reveals who they are. Right. Uh, and I don't think this is a spoiler because I don't actually know why this matters. It turns <laughs> out it's the doctor. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think instead of just writing from the perspective of the doctor, he writes for as this narrator, but then reveals that it's the doctor? 
Yeah, right. Um, it's really interesting. I'm not sure why he doesn't want us to know that the doctor is the narrator. But at the end of the book, when we get the um, passage where his identity is revealed, um, he's described as an honest witness. Like his job was just to kind of bear factual witness to living during this time. And he says, it was only right that those whose desires are limited to man and his humble yet formidable love should enter, if only now and then, into their reward. And so he's, he's just a, an average human being giving this average human telling of life, um, you know, just in the role of, of, of what is our job while we're here to bear witness to the mm -hmm. things that we do. You know, one of the central existentialist themes of Camus is that there's no meaning in life. And mm -hmm. people often assume if I accept the position that there's no meaning in life, my only, uh, my only option at that point is suicide. Like that nobody would live a life without ascribing some external meaning to it. And it's really interesting because every character in the novel, except for the doctor, ascribes meaning somewhere outside of themselves. And we can talk about this in different ways. But I think the interesting thing about Ryu being the narrator is he's not telling us what to do with this story, because mm -hmm. that's not his job. He's just a witness to the facts. And most of Kenmu's novels are written this way, that they're telling us a story, and then we're invited into deciding how we respond, given given the telling of the facts. Do you have a favorite character in the book? So I, I find my, because I love Camus, I find myself drawn to the characters that I feel like are expressing sort of aspects of him. So, the, and so I feel like, I feel like the doctor and then the character of Taru, um, who is the, this um, person who is, sort of joins the doctor in fighting against the plague. And he's, um, uh, he's somebody who is a traveler to, um, to Iran. So he's not from there. Um, and we don't learn about his story until I think like part four of the book. It's pretty right. late because the whole, the rest of the time you're sort of wondering, he's also somebody who's chronicling, um, what he's seeing and he helps introduce some of the other characters to the doctor. Um, and even the narrator talks about sort of reading through Taru's notes. Um, but then you have this moment where where Taru talks about why he's there fighting the plague. Um, and he talks about, he tells the story about his father. And his father is a, a prosecuting attorney um, who is uh, an advocate for the death penalty. And he talks about how as a child he he always sort of admired and loved his father. And then he went to court with him one day and saw him push for the death penalty against this um, uh, against this, this uh, defendant who he said, I'm certain was guilty, but, but he was so, he found it so abhorrent that his father would be pushing for the death of this person that that like changes the trajectory of his life. And he ends up sort of being this, uh, this kind of idealist, right. Who fights in the Spanish civil war. He's kind of like Rick from um, Casablanca a little bit, right. Like fights in the Spanish <laughs> civil war, finds himself in, in North Africa. Um, and, and he is expressing one of the big, um, 
one of the big ideas, uh, Camus wrote, writes an essay called uh, Neither Victims Nor Executioners, right? And it's this, um, it, it's sort of talking about kind of how we're supposed to to live in this world, right? That, that we don't give up and become a victim, but we also don't um, sort of take, take matters into our own hands where we find ourselves um, uh, taking the, almost the reins of power to, to sort of impress that power upon other people. Um, and I think he wrote that in the context of sort of the end of the first or second world war and like, okay, how do right. we deal with, how do we deal with the Nazis now? Right. And he says like, well, in essence, we could become them. Like we could now persecute them out of vengeance. And that's the, one of the things I've always admired about Camus is this sense of like, balance that he that he tries to have and 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 just and it's ends up just being like decency uh in a kind of way right like but but not without justice but like but there's like there is like there are lines he won't cross exactly um camus is really interesting in his personal life he actually starts off as a journalist long before he's a novelist and he um is trying to draw attention to the plight of arabs in a french controlled algeria to some of the nomadic people groups who live more in the deserts and in the mountains and are completely without rights in society and um and then he gets drawn into journalism in World War II as well. And yet he does have this very um, balanced response. One of his key themes is the absurdity of life. We wanna always make rational sense of what's happening to us. Um, he says we're creatures who have a passion for reason and justice, who live in a world that's fundamentally irrational and unjust, right? And so we're always trying to make sense, try to push ourselves to make sense of why is this happening? Um, this isn't fair. How do we live in the midst of this? And, and Camus' kind of position is just a reticent acceptance of it. You know, it is the mm -hmm. way that it is. Stop trying to make sense of it. Stop trying to make it more just. You know, just do your own part day by day. And Taru's such an interesting character because in a lot of ways he is like the doctor going about his day-to-day duties of trying to help take care of the dead and organizing a volunteer corps. And we find out that he has this sort of deep drive to try to be almost like a humanist saint. Like Well, he says that, right? A saint without God, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes, a saint without God. And there's the sense in which um, I think the big difference between Taru and then the doctor is that Taru is pushing himself to this external standard of goodness um, and you kind of get the sense that he may not ever get there, but he's not going to stop trying. Whereas the doctor isn't appealing to some external standard of, of judging his life. He's just accepting that he's here. He's a doctor. He does what doctors do. So would you say that, that, that the doctor is more of sort of ultimately Camus position then where, where the Taru's whole thing about being a, uh, a saint without God, like that's, that that's not necessarily what Camus is talking about? Yeah, that's, I would, I lean more in the position of the doctor kind of being Camus. Uh, I, I don't know if Camus would use the word hero, but it's interesting because in so many of Camus novels, you can see the myth of Sisyphus as the like central theme. And so Sisyphus is the, 
you know, character in Greek mythology who gets the punishment of eternally pushing a rock up a hill only to watch it fall down and then have to do it again. I tell my students that like the 21st ex century example of this is the dishwasher. Like every single day, I think, why do I unload this only to reload it and have to unload right. it again tomorrow, right? Um, and we imagine if we were put in the position of Sisyphus, we would want to fight it as much as we can we would um it would be like the worst possible punishment i mean that's why the gods come up with it because they think this is the worst possible punishment they can give someone and camus reads the character of sisyphus is actually like having a smile on his face so he's defying his fate and actually um we're to picture him watching the rock rolling down the hill with a smile on his face in the sense of instead of fighting against your existence and trying to get it to be something that you're not, whether you're appeasing the gods or appeasing someone else, or you're fighting against injustice, um, that the best way to be human is just to just keep pushing the mm -hmm. rock up the hill. And so that's how I kind of read the character of the doctor is the mm -hmm. just keep taking care of the patients no point in asking why, no point in explaining why you do it. You just do it. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the characters that I find really interesting that I want to hear you talk a, a lot about um, is the, uh, the, the priest. Yeah. Uh, Father Pantaloo. Um, I mean, he's definitely intentionally a character there that, it's interesting that that he that that Camus wants to put a person there who's trying to frame this in terms of God's will, and he actually makes a makes a couple sermons, and we see the priest's view shift over time as he has these experiences. But what also what I, this is another thing I love about Camus is like he doesn't he's not a the priest is not a fool. Like it's not merely right. a fool, right? Because it could be framed that way where it's like, how ridiculous is this person who keeps like the priest has this kind of dignity to his end at least, right? Like, like I feel like he ends up at a place where he's he's also fighting the plague alongside the doctor. Right. Exactly. Um, I always tell students when we're reading the book, you know, Camus an atheist, but he's writing a Christian character in like, you know, a really authentic, genuine way. It's not easy, you know, even though we know Camus is not going to agree with the position of the priest, he writes a pretty genuine telling that Christians really have to wrestle with in terms of thinking, how do we make sense of, of life and faith in the context of horrific suffering? And right in the first sermon, the priest is so like vivid in his description of this is God's punishment. And there's this image of God wielding like a huge two by four smacking people down. And, right. and the idea being, if you don't want to get the plague, you need to repent. And, you know, and um, I don't, sometimes we hear echoes of that coming from Christians in time oh, of chaos, yeah. right? What you know, God causes a hurricane to wipe out a certain population or a disease or a plight, you know? And again, that's us trying to make sense of something in a fundamentally unjust world. And so we somehow see it as a form of God's justice. Um, but then it's actually the priest witnessing the horrific death of a young child 
that shatters that thesis for him, right? Because you can't, you can't justify God's justice killing that little girl in that particular way. And that's really a turning point um, in his coming to just a more radical position of faith, that faith calls us to act no matter what, that faith calls us into radical love, radical action. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And he talks about sort of all or nothing, right? That it's like yes. either you, either you have to fully believe and just say, I don't know why this happened, but this, this must be God's will, or right. you have to discard it all. And he, and he's calling people to say, well, let's, you know, in a, in a way it's, it's, it's another version of embracing not quite the absurdity, but the absurdity of the fact that we can't understand why. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know? And I think that, um, you know, Camus, as far as I know, never says this about the character of Father Panelou, but, um, in a lot of ways, it's a Kierkegaardian version of Christianity. I always think of Kierkegaard and Camus as asking the same questions and having the same view of reality, and they both take a leap. Um, for Kierkegaard, you've got a leap into faith, and for Camus, you've got a leap into meaninglessness. And mm -hmm. so I do think that this idea of it's got gotta be all or nothing like either there's a god even in times of plague or there's not regardless of whether we understand what god's doing ultimately it all boils down to those two choices and so i think mm -hmm. it's a pretty genuine look at what christianity would look like from an existentialist position yeah yeah and 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 even um you, it, what's interesting when i uh, think about there's this great conversation between the doctor and the priest. I think Taru might be there too. Um, after the, the the young boy dies, right? And they're talking about like, how do we think about this? And the priest is starting to develop this idea of like, well, clearly this is God's plan for this young boy to die. And and Taru, uh, in a clear echo of Ivan Karamazov, is like, I I can't accept the system where an innocent child is sacrificed. Right. You know, and, and I mean, and that is coming right from the grand inquisitor from the brothers Karamazov. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and so, so it's, it ends up being, it ends up leading the, the plague in the city ends up leading to these big kind of conversations. Um, I actually like the way Camus does it. It's, it's less grand than Dostoevsky who, you know, writes a 700 page novels and stuff. So he spends a, like, like there are a lot, those conversations are a lot longer. I feel like Camus is really efficient in his writing of those things. Like it'll be a few lines and you realize, wow, there was so much loaded into what this, what, what, you know, what he said, but, the, but those ideas are still sort of swimming around there. Yeah. I think one of the things that uh, makes me a little bit anxious in our current situation is that, you know, the, the, the scientists and the politicians are telling us that we're still pretty early on in what all of this looks like. And so mm -hmm. I don't feel like we're really faced with the full weight of the existentialist questions yet until mm -hmm. it starts getting a lot closer to home and the volume of tragedy um, makes us, you know, ask questions that we wouldn't typically ask. There's I mean, it makes sense why existentialism has a huge, you know, boom during World War One and World War Two, because, you know, in Europe, 
everyone is dramatically affected by the impact of those two events. And so philosophers are trying to make sense of what does it mean to be human um, when the reality of death is very imminent. And, and I feel like, I don't know, uh, I hope it doesn't get to this, but like by May or June, are we going to be more like the characters towards the end of the novel? Right, right. Or or will it be longer? I mean, I, I think right. about the, the longer projections and I start to think about in the book how long the city is is quarantined like yeah. this isn't this isn't a two weeks or a two month situation like it's it's a long time where it, where it takes a while for this kind of thing to develop um another character that i that i i actually really enjoy in the book is uh joseph grand yes um, and when, when i first read this book it was when, uh with in a class with uh paul reisner who taught in the philosophy department for a number of years oh, yeah and um grand was his favorite character the the fact that um one of the things he does is works. He's working on a novel, right? But he's only writing. He's only written the first sentence, and he can't get past the first sentence. And he can't. It's because he's a, he's like this picture of the artistic perfectionist in a kind of way, mm -hmm. where it's like like he won't move on until the sentence is as perfect as it could be, and he doesn't want someone to see it unless it's absolutely perfect. And and um and so I I, I, I the the his dream is that he'll send this book to the publishers. There'll be this conference room of these, these men reading it and they'll finish it. And one of them will stand up and say, gentlemen, hats off. Right. And that, that's like, <laughs> that's his, uh, his dream of what like artistic perfection. And he's also just this person who's always struggling for what is the right word? What is the perfect word? Not just in his writing, but in his life. And his life is a mess because of that. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's got just sort of the, menial office job of being the clerk keeping all of the records and you know his uh he's lost his wife right through this like not yeah i mean she left him yeah she left yes. him no not that yes. she died but like yeah. she gets fed up with the you know inability to engage real life and he's also a very you know believable character right we see oh, yeah. these traits in in ourselves of of you know Again, thinking um, in terms of what does it mean to be human, if a person thinks I've got to leave some lasting legacy behind so that I will never be forgotten, you know, if that's in a great work of art, what it, what would that mean? But he's got this standard where he can't ever produce it because the, yeah. The right, and, and that seems like a reflection of also, um, almost like the artistic version of dealing with the absurd, right? The mm -hmm. idea that, so the way I always thought about the 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 plague and 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 some other ideas that Camus writes about in other places is it's like you if you have this continuum of like total victory and total defeat what we what 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 we learn about this world is like if if total victory is not possible right total defeat is still possible but right. it's like so so you're once you embrace the fact that you can't Totally, when because because the doctor knows we can't defeat the plague. I mean, the 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 scary last line of the book is that it's th that the plague isn't gone. It's just sort of exactly. laying low, waiting for a a, a future. Po I can't remember the words exactly, but waiting for this future un uh, unknowing population to and the rats will come back out again, right? So there's this sense that you never win, but that's part of embracing the absurdity. Is like okay, well, total victory is not possible. So then, what can you do? Right. And, and Grand is still tied up in this idea that total artistic perfection is still possible. And that leads to a kind of paralysis. Now, I think Grand is really interesting to think about 
uh, as professors at Bethel and at other places are thinking about I mean, people who have taught these cl their classes for years, decades sometimes, and now they're forced to do this in a different way. And if their mind is stuck in, I, this has to be exactly what it was. It has to be perfect. And there's this sort of paralysis of how am I going to do this? And maybe one of the things the play can teach us is, well, like, like Grand actually starts to find meaning during the plague because he has to give up on some of those things, right? Right. And it's like, oh, maybe that's that's a lesson we can learn, right? Like, like Grand finds his meaning when life, when he's, if he can't be motivated himself to take these next steps, you know, he has his paralysis, the plague pushes him out of that to a certain degree. And actually, I mean, he's one of the characters that the doctor is most praising of. Um, mm -hmm. throughout this, you know, and, and he's exactly. somebody who is not particularly, he's interesting and quirky, but not praiseworthy before this. No, and it's so interesting that you say that because um, Jason Steffenhagen recorded me earlier this week on a short little clip of advice for like how to, you know, um, live well during this time period. And so if anybody's listened to that, that's my highlight reel. My the other part of my reel, the outtakes from that, are that every time I go to work on my courses, within five minutes, I start to have this like mini adult tantrum of, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. This is too hard. This is, I'm not going to be able to get this to turn out right. I just want to walk in the classroom and teach. And I can't do that, right? I mean, the the, the tantrum, there's no point to it. It's not going to change anything. And so then I just have to go back to start to start trying again. Um, and I do think there's some important meaning for that, too. And if any students are listening, right, it's just not going to be the same. And you're not going to be working in the ways that you typically do, and, and maybe even with the same quality that you usually do. But that doesn't mean that there isn't, there aren't still important things we can learn about ourselves um, through this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of the th other things I find really interesting about this book is um, when I think about existentialism and things like that, I often think about like the individual facing an absurd world. Mm -hmm. But this is not a story about an individual or i mean it is this it's a story about these people who come together like it's, right. it is a collective it is a, a team of people and and we only see some of that team um and and you know and that makes me think of um in the rebel so so if the mrs sisyphus is basically asking the question if we live in an absurd world why don't we just kill ourselves right and then he explains why not the rebel is asking why don't we just kill each other like why don't we kill like why don't you just do what you know and and then and and uh, the, the big idea there is sort of, you know, um, he starts by playing with the, the Cartesian Catigo uh, ergo sum, right? I think therefore I am. And, and he starts to play with that in terms of I rebel therefore, right? And mm. he says, you know, first he, he critiques like I rebel therefore I am. And then he critiques I re rebel therefore we will be. Mm. Like, the, the, like you can't postpone our like our being rebel like rebellion ha you have to be as you're rebelling like we have to be so yeah. he ends up with i rebel therefore we are like so it, it actually that that is um and it's been like 20 years since i read that book so there's a lot more to it than that but that's the the thing that that uh that uh insurgo ergo sumus is the thing that that sticks with me um is is this idea that, that there is this sort of collective communal aspect of that and that i was really moved by that in in the rebel and it's why 
the plague feels different to me than the stranger or even right. the fall mm-hmm. that, that this, this really seems like this is about how we pull together, you know? Yeah. And, um, so I'm curious, you know, to, to think about this book in light of COVID-19 and the world, uh, I was going to say the world that we're living in, but literally the world, this is, this right. is global, right? Like, like what are the lessons specifically in a time of plague in a time of pandemic that this can teach us practically. If we're thinking about the Sarah Shady public philosopher mantra of do a little bit of good in the world, like what can this teach us about that? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, And I do think that's an important theme to pick out because very few characters in the novel are alone. We see them in groups, including just the the townspeople um, and we watch friendships develop and there's a journalist who's continually trying to figure out how to sneak out of town but he ends up um, you know in the friend group with the doctor in Taru and kind of helping out and you know it really is like existentialist Avengers right like they all have to come (laughs) together (laughs) exactly and you know one of the things that I've uh, been saying to people is um, do things that make you feel human during these abnormal times. And I think one of the things that makes us feel human is trying to, as best we can, replicate normal human interactions. So mm-hmm. like this conversation right now, which we would typically do in my office, we're in two separate locations, but we've got video on because if I see you, I at least feel like I'm still talking to you. Or right. like earlier this week, we, we Sam and I have a group of friends that usually have lunch together. So we scheduled a, a virtual lunch, you know, or... Um, I have a friend whose 30th birthday is today. So at three o'clock, we're going to, you know, a, a friend group is going to log on to celebrate her birthday um, or going for walks and getting out of the house and seeing the neighbors, right? That those human interactions ground us, I think, in um, remembering who we are and, you know, and what it wow. means to be human. You just made me think of something. So I was thinking, okay, where in the book do we see that? And this is fascinating to me because there's one theme that I think in, I think it's in The Stranger. I, I'm sure it's in A Happy Death. I'm sure it's in First Man. Camus loves to write about swimming in the sea, right? Yes. Characters are constantly mm-hmm. doing that. But in The Plague, that is the moment of like feeling human and alive again. And notice it's two people that go exactly. out. It's, it's the doctor and true. I've never thought about that. Because right. I think in the other books, it's an individual swimming out in the sea. Like that. that's this sort of it, it's it's like the most alive moment of like like feeling alive. This is fascinating. Like I haven't ever picked up on this theme in Camus before, but here we are as Sir Shady Public Philosopher making philosophical breakthroughs. But you're exactly right, because it's such a turning point in our understanding of the doctor's character, too, because he is always with people, but always sort of still in his own little isolated self bubble, right? I mean, he's the person with who's not really vulnerably himself with anyone. He's almost like a robot kind of character mm-hmm. until you have this very touching moment of friendship when they go swimming together. And that fundamentally changes how we think of him as a character. But it wouldn't have happened with him just on his own. Right, right. Yeah. Wow. So Breaking so that's so, so we need to find our version of swimming in the sea. Exactly. Like, exactly. Wow. Yes. Huh. So what what is students' responses to this book usually when you read this? 
Um, they I, actually, I find students interact with it a little bit better than the stranger because I think it's easier to put yourself into the shoes of various characters sure. than it is to get into the head of Merso. Um, but yeah, I think it will be interesting to teach this book post COVID nineteen. Um, students start off with it being a little bit weird, but they really get into thinking about the the motivations of the different characters and they they want to figure out what's motivating the doctor and you know and, and kind of fighting against the idea that the answer to that is nothing <laughs> but right yeah we end up you know by the second half of the book we're having really great discussions about faith and about meaning um and and suffering i think the book is good too because as much as we want to you know think about the problem of evil or the problem of suffering in these sort of analytical ways on paper and philosophy or theology there's always the lived reality the psychology of it that no matter if i say on paper god created this for a greater good that doesn't do anything to address the psychological aspect of human suffering so we have really good conversations about that which makes it really fun to teach but yeah it's a little bit unnerving now to think about um our lives with COVID-19 and, and if we ever get to a post-COVID-19 world. Right. I mean, I, I think you'll have you'll have 10 years of students for whom this book will land differently. In the same way, uh, my first week of teaching CWC uh, here at Bethel uh, was 9-11. Mm. And, and for about five or six years, when I would we teach Antigone or we'd teach Henry V, it's like, those discussions came more alive because you asked, you're asking these questions about the burial of the dead or what mm -hmm. is, what is an appropriate military response? You know, what is, what is right and just in those, in those moments? Um, uh, how do we deal with, with traitors or terrorists, you know, right. like, you know, so, so actually I, I feel like they make some of these conversations come alive more because I mean, I don't like to, I don't like to use the word relevance because I think stuff is relevant, even if it's not, in moments of crisis, but I think it helps students to see the relevance uh, uh, more acutely, maybe uh, if they have, if they've had these kind of experiences. Right. Um, and I do think kind of looping back to something that you said at the beginning, Sam, um, I do think we'll be talking about the tensions between scientists and politicians um, mm -hmm. in the novel, because we're seeing those played out in our life now. And, and I, it's a theme that it was always sort of at the background before when I've taught the novel, but it is really interesting to think about how do you try to politically spin or contain a situation? How do you finally get to the point to labeling it, you know, the plague for us labeling it a pandemic, you know, and what are the, what's the fallout of that. So all mm -hmm. those tensions are really interesting as well. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun getting to talk about one of my favorite books. It wasn't what we had planned for March 2020, Sarah Shady Public Philosopher, but that is okay. Because uh, yeah, we are in unprecedented times. So thanks for joining me for this conversation, Sam. And to our listeners, even though you're limited in how you will do this, be creative and do some good in the world this week. Thanks. <laughs>